Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And we are finishing up our theme this week, which was, I used to be married, but I'm better now. (laughs) Such a good theme. This is how Emma Ledeau felt as well. She was born Emma Teresa Cole on September 10th, 1875. Another old-timey case. Fun fact, when I was researching Nellie's case that I presented earlier this week, I found a blurb about Emma. And started down a rabbit hole and was like, oh, we got to co- cover Emma, too. Yeah, the first, the one earlier this week was so good. I really liked it. I, I liked researching that one. Yeah. Emma was actually born in the small town of Pine Grove, east of Jackson, in Amador County, California. Her parents were Thomas Jefferson Cole from mm. um, California. And Mary Ann Gardner. According to research by Emma's distant cousin, Ruth Blackenbaker, Emma's maternal grandfather, Eli, owned a mine off from Clinton Road near Jackson, California. And from family genealogy records, they showed that Emma was about three years old when her family moved to Oregon for about 10 years until they returned back to Amador County in 1888. By the age of 16, Emma was married to Charles Barrett, who was 22 of Pine Grove. Emma's mother, Mary Ann, actually gave gave consent for Emma to wed Charles in an affidavit that was signed on February 2nd, 1892. Then, only eight days later, on February 10th, 1892, Emma's father, Tomer, Thomas Jefferson Cole, left his wife, Mary Ann Cole. Oh. So he, he just up and left? Just up and left. Yep. Don't know if it had anything to do with the affidavit that she signed allowing Emma to marry Charles, I don't know. But Emma's first marriage t- took place on March 2nd, 1892. And there was actually a 30-day waiting period prior to marrying at that time. And unfortunately, the marriage didn't last very wrong- long. Rumors started to spread quickly that meddling parents were the cause of the early marital ruin. So... They had this 30-day waiting period after they got married. I don't know. Was that like a let's see how this goes period? I'm not sure. sure, But that's why I had said earlier about I'm not sure if Thomas leaving his wife because he's, you know, was it had something to do with her saying that he could marry or that Emma could marry Charles. I'm not sure. But a lot of rumors started spreading. And there was a lot of issues within their marriage. And after four years of marriage, Charles left Emma on May 1st, 1895. It's hard with these old-timey cases to try to, like, piece different things together. But I found an article where a gentleman um, had said, he kind of shared, like, his own recollections of the time. And he said, I used to run a saloon up in Jackson, and it was there that I became acquainted with Emma about 16 years ago. Her family lives a few miles above Jackson. Shortly after I went up there, she married a young rancher by the name of Barrett, Charles Barrett, 
living near Pine Grove. She did not live with him very long, however. They had some kind of split up and got a divorce, and he got a divorce from her upon the grounds of infidelity, I believe. Oh, okay. And that was printed March 30th, 1906. So rumors are flying. Mm-hmm. We're not really sure. Friends of both Emma and Charles later claim that their separation and, and divorce was due to Emma having taken part in extramarital relations. Now, by January 5th, 1898, after the divorce case had been held up in court for nearly three years, the judge finally granted the divorce decree. <laughs> wow. Could, oh, that would suck. Yeah, it Wanting would. to be divorced from someone and being stuck. Next, Emma marries her second husband, William Stanley Williams. I love it. <laughs> I knew you would. (laughs) I would have picked the case just based on that alone. For sure. For sure. William Stanley Williams. Nice. Because the the Williams family are like, what will we name him? What's a great name? Mm. I know. William. William without the S. (laughs) There are no other names. So the 1900 census of Arizona shows that William and Emma were living together. They'd been married for two years. So that means they were married around 1898. So that would would coincide with her divorce from Barrett when it was finalized, Charles Barrett. William Stanley Williams' occupation was listed as a minor and that he was born in England. But unfortunately, he died in Arizona. On June 20th, 1902, under suspicious circumstances. Oh. He was buried at Evergreen Cemetery in Bisbee, Arizona. Was it deadly faint? (laughs) The everlasting faint? Everlasting faint. Well, there is an article in an old-timey newspaper that I won't quote it, but I am just going to summarize for you. Something that I have not told you yet about Emma is that her paternal grandfather, he died under suspicious circumstances, and they believed that it was poisoning. Oh. Okay. Okay, so there's two people now. In the family. Mm-hmm. There are some rumors spreading here about, this is odd, her paternal grandfather dies under what was really heavily presumed to be poisoning from his wife. Mm-hmm. To now we have William S. Williams dying under that as well and he was quite heavily insured aren't they all aren't they all emma received between four and five thousand dollars and then another two thousand because he was a part of the ancient order of united workmen oh wow so he was sitting on a little something something a little bit of a of a gold mine Mm -hmm. if you will he was a miner so oh i like it it. Uh uh-huh yeah since he was a part of the miners' union, she was also given $75 for burial expenses. Wow. Yeah, so she didn't get off too well, you know, too bad here. No, not at all. The money was paid to a woman under the name of Mrs. Emma T. Williams. At the time, it was like, um, okay, this is odd. What they end up chalking it up to is heart failure. Mm. So so you weren't off. Everlasting faint. Heart yeah. failure. It sounds like they maybe were suspicious a little bit. Like, this is weird. Absolutely. But they did not have strong enough accusation to further investigation. So mm-hmm. they, they really couldn't do that. And they're like, okay, heart failure it is. Then, after the official death record was done, the death record, record actually said gastroenteritis. Mm. 
mm-hmm. which is an inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. The average person today would associate the term with bacterial or viral infections or even food poisoning. But medical case studies have proven that gastroenteritis can be caused by a number of things, including certain medicines and the overuse of alcohol. There were newspapers of the time that mentioned that there was suspicion that William T. Williams. I'm been, still loving it. Ha, I'm sorry. It's William S. Williams. Oh, yeah. William she S. Williams. She was Emma T. Williams. Okay. So, yep. William S. Williams had been poisoned by nitric acid. So that is out there. And then they report later that it was more than likely heart failure. William S. Williams' body had not been in the ground three months before Emma married her third husband, Albert Newton McVicker. A McVicker. Oh, we have a McVicker here. We do. Who was born in Canada in 1869. There was a lot of suspicion of, was Emma having an affair with McVicker and together they poisoned the husband? I mean, three months. Mm -hmm. Granted, we all grieve differently, but But that's... We even mentioned in some of the articles... That's a oh, very yeah. short time. Yep. So here's El- good old Albert Newton McVicker. And his family came to the U.S. They settled in Wichita, Kansas. There was, I found an interview with Albert McVicker's brother, J.E. McVicker. And he said that Albert left Kansas and went westward to Cripple Creek, Colorado, which was in this time the areas were starting to like bloom and take off. And he got a job with Wells Fargo Fargo, Mm -hmm. and was quickly promoted as an agent. And by 1901, he quit Wells Fargo, relocated, relocated to Globe, Arizona, where he met Emma and the two wed in Arizona in 1902. So Emma moved back to California, traveling between her mother and stepfather, James Head's Ranch in Jackson, and then to the district in uh, San Francisco. But at the time, the area was full of theaters, hotels, and and all that. So it's, it's known for its very active nightlife, including prostitution. Why was a married woman who was so far from her newly wedded husband, Mr. McVicker, why is she going back and forth right? and like frequenting these the San Francisco. Good question. Time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. I think she was creeping a little bit. I think that she was engaging in the world's oldest profession. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, she's been married a total of three times, and she didn't really seem to want to stop there. So she was married to McVicker, but then as she's gallivanting from San Francisco, back and forth, you know, from her parents' ranch to San Francisco, while McVicker's just not with her, She said that she was supporting herself by being a seamstress and by the help of her gentleman friends. Oh. This is where we get into dabbling in the world's oldest profession. Okay. Okay. That's all she said, seamstress and and her gentleman friends. But August 26th, 1905, so she married McVicker in 1902, Emma became a bigamist by marrying her fourth husband, Eugene, or Jean, Ladeau, of Sutter Creek. Now, what about McVicker? He just f- fell off. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I mean, they weren't married very long no. before she started going back and forth between San Francisco and, you know, he worked for Wells Fargo. He was a well-to-do agent. I mean, <sighs> on to the next. I guess. I YOLO. Guess. <laughs> YOLO. <laughs> right. So Mr. Ladeau grew up with Emma in Amador County. His family ranch was actually right next door to Emma's 
stepfather's property. Ladeau was a very quiet man and he kind of preferred to keep to himself. They just got married in the courthouse, the county clerk's office in the courthouse in Woodland, California, actually. They were wed by Judge Lampton in the presence of a couple of people, Byron Hillhouse and Constable Parker. So like a police officer and some random man in the courthouse. (laughs) I just realized both cases, like these women... Oh, are so similar. Oh, they are. Yeah. Like, so when if anybody brings up like, oh, you got to stick it out with your marriage. I'm going to bring these two girls up. 19, oh, yes, early 1900s. Not, not saying you shouldn't stick it out in your marriage. I'm not saying right. that. <laughs> but, but these women were married multiple times because they were unhappy. Yeah, in the 1900s. Yes, it, it it's been happening. Right. The world won't end. That's what it tells me. Yes, exactly. So they registered at the Barnes Hotel under the names Mrs. E. Williams and Mr. Jean Ledeau. So they're married at the courthouse. Then they mm-hmm. go to a hotel and she uses the name Mrs. E. Williams. Why? Why? I don't know. That's her widow right, name. Right. And actually she married McVicker, never took his name. She Dorothea kept- Puente did the same thing. She was like, I'm not, or she kept the one husband's name even right. through all the other. All the others. Mm-hmm. Nope. Yeah, she she just kept the one that she might have potentially poisoned. Killed? Okay. Yeah. However, when later interviewed, Judge Lampton was like, you know, I don't think Emma was really honest with me about where her res- where she lived. I don't I don't think her marriage license application was legit at all. Okay. He said the ceremony itself was really odd. Admitting that Lado didn't act like a normal husband who was happy to be wed to his bride. Or even going so far, in, and also he went so far as to refuse kissing upon completion of the vows. So it was a super fast wedding ceremony, and he didn't want to kiss his bride. And then they left town as quickly as possible. Weird. They registered at that hotel, and instead of returning to the hotel, they went straight to the train station over an hour early to wait await their ride for a honeymoon someplace else. So it's like you've got an hour, you have a hotel room and an hour to spare before your train comes and you're newly married and you're at the train station waiting. Now, I know a lot of people like to be prompt. My husband likes to be on mm-hmm. time, too. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if we were just married and we had an hour, he'd be like, I only need 15. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Exactly. So this is odd. This is what the judge bit. is saying. Where he's like, this, you know, come to think of it. The judge is like, I odd. only need 15 mm-hmm. and I know what's going on here. Right. This is suspicious. This is suspicious. <laughs> Ladeau and McVicker knew nothing about the other. Okay. So like Ladeau has no idea that she's really still married to McVicker. Mm-hmm. McVicker has no idea that she's out marrying other men. And it's actually figured out that by the time she marries Ladeau, McVicker is actually only living like 47 miles away. Oh, really? From where she married him. Oh, Mm -hmm. wow. So this allowed her to jump back and forth between husbands without the other knowing about each other. You know, she hops a train. We hear about women or men Men doing doing this this. all the time. I've never heard of a woman doing it. Emma Ledeau is here. Well, Williams McVicker Ledeau. (laughs) Technically. How many last names could she have? Yeah. Yeah. So, and obviously at this time, especially, no one is thinking when Emma's absent that she's going and spending time with another husband. Right. 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 This went on for like seven months without either one of them knowing. This had to have been exhausting for her. 
I would think. Well, it, I don't know that Lado was really interested in sex, so maybe it wasn't so bad. Mm, maybe. I don't know. According to the San Francisco Call, dated March 30th, 1906, it said that Dr. John Dillon of San Francisco claimed that on the night of March 12th, 1906, Emma Ladeau, a patient that he knew for years, called him to the residence of Lexington House at 212 Eddy Street, room 21, to treat her husband, Mick Vicker. This is Uh-oh. when she's with Mick Vicker. Okay. Emma stated that she needed a doctor's help because she believed he had been poisoned. Dr. Dillon suspected arsenic or morphine poisoning and immediately took action by, quote, washing out his stomach. God only knows. I don't even want to know what that man went through. Probably gave him cocaine to wash it out. (laughs) And booze. Tickled him with a feather. Yes. Let's get this right out of you. Oh, shit. And he also gave McVicker a light sleeping potion. Cool. More morphine. And you think he's been drugged already by it. Oh, the, I hope it old, was lavender, but I don't know. Oh, we just don't know. We the old timey uh, medicine stuff is like my favorite. I would love to cover like more cases with that. Mm, well, yes, the medical procedures, yes. <laughs> the potions. So yes, this is a sleeping potion. Okay, put him right to sleep. I'm sure it, it helped him tremendously. After McVicker recovered enough to speak to the doctor, he was questioned about what he had taken that made him so violently ill. McVicker answered, I do not know. She said it was the clams and beer that we had a short time ago. Which that'll fucking do it. That's going to rip your digestive system up for sure. But it was (laughs) the clams and beer. It's a, a dangerous combo. It was then that Emma seemed startled and perplexed and claimed that she forgot to tell, like, oh my God, yeah, we had the clam bake. Mm. And some beers. That's right. Shit. My bad. I forgot. Yes. And she's just like, you know what? I think that was the cause. You know, undercooked seafood. Yes. There's the warning about it. Always. The doctor is kind of like, well, this is weird because did you both have them? You're telling me that you both had them, but only he got sick. But he's like, whatever. He's alive. He's resting peacefully. You know what? I'll... I'll come back the next day and make sure he's recovered. Dear- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he had his cocaine. He had his potion. He's fine. Right. What more? I gave him all the best medical treatment available. Right. right. <laughs> During the visit, Emma approached the doctor for a prescription to purchase some cyanide of potassium, knowing the doctor could prescribe it while they were there. Now, the, a newspaper later stated that upon Emma's request, Dr. Dillon jokingly, re- jokingly replied, you're not going to give him any more, are you? Oh. Yeah. Emma's like, <laughs> no, the cyanide is for my hobby of photography, and I need it to develop my photographs. Of, of course. course. Of course. Her big excuse was that she could procure the cyanide in Stockton, but since she had taken photos right there in San Francisco, she didn't want to wait to develop them. So the doctor's like, because, you know, if they develop bad, let me go get another photo while I'm here. Please tell me the doctor was like, okay. Of course. The doctor's like, well, that makes sense. Sure. Here you go. Have, have double. Yes. So Emma and the doctor went to the Harrison drugstore where he then went to the back to pick up the bottle of cyanide 
However, he noticed that it was empty. The clerk working at the front claimed that he was writing out a like a request to get more and for new inventory. So <laughs> the fact that the pharmacy didn't have the cyanide Emma wanted um, made her somewhat disappointed, the doctor thought. And to remedy the situation, he wrote her a prescription so that she could pick up some at a nearby pharmacy on Ellis Street. Now, no one thought to ask why the pharmacy was out of the cyanide and had to refill it Uh uh-huh when a person just the day before had been possibly poisoned by it Mm. so then emma starts crying and told the doctor that the incident earlier had really stressed her out caused her too much excitement And then she confesses she had a previous addiction to morphine and that she needed some badly. Believing that she was telling the truth because, you know, it's the early 1900s and women aren't capable of lying. All we can do is spit out babies, suck a dick, and make a cake. (laughs) What a time to be alive. And what a way to be able to take advantage of dumbass men. Oh, for sure. So she needs some... She made him a cake, didn't she? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) It doesn't say that in my notes, but I'm going to say she probably did. I bet that's the one that she did. So, of course, he gives her just a little bit of morphine and warned her about the drug, the use of it. He's got an admitted, someone who's admitting to their addiction and he's like, let me help you by giving you more. These are the reasons I cannot get Claritin D. Without them judging me anymore. It it started way back when. (laughs) Yes, it did. Sure did. So he didn't really think much of the matter. And then when he learns of the McVicker's death two weeks later. Oh, no. He's like, hmm. (laughs) I am now satisfied that a previous attempt was made to murder McVicker by poison. Hmm. and And that I saved his life. Wait, what? The doc, the good doctor is like, hey. Oh, when he did the stomach cleanse. Yeah. Okay. I saved his life. But then didn't think about the fact that he helped her. Re-kill him. Re-kill him. Yes. Oh, doc. Yeah. And this man's in charge of medicine for the town. I'm terrified for this town. I love how after he dies, the doctor's like, you know I what? I do believe. I think she attempted it before, but not to worry. I saved him. Then simultaneously. But not this but time. I, right. I will not take credit for the fact that I simultaneously then helped kill him by all these prescriptions. And gave her some morphine to take the And a prescription off. for cyanide. Oh, my so God. So she goes and poison, poisons him with morphine and cyanide. I can't handle this. So there are other witnesses that believe Emma had previously attempted to kill McVicker on their trip to San Francisco um, at the Lexington Lodging House on Eddy Street. I think it's safe to say, I'd say she did. A gentleman, Mr. E. Lord, that is his name, who owned a hardware store in town, claimed that Emma had purchased a meat cleaver from his store around the same time. After hearing of the murder in Stockton, he revealed his collection of his encou- his recollection, excuse me, of his encounter with Emma as well as his suspicions. Also, his Japanese servant, gag me. Yeah. Harry Akazaki, who was attending the the rooms at the hotel that they had stayed in, 
has had his own account to share with the newspaper. He said this, I quote, Mick Vicker and Mrs. Ledeau came here on Monday morning, March 12th. I showed the couple to the room on the third floor. They seemed very affectionate. McVicker appeared to be in perfect health. She appeared to be trying to persuade McVicker to lie down when I left the room. The next time I saw Mrs. Ledeau, she was on the telephone in the office talking, I think, to Dr. Dillon. Between 6 and 7 in the evening, Dr. Dillon called to see McVicker and remained in his room until about 7.20. When he left, Mrs. Ledeau came with him to the head of the stairs. McVicker and Mrs. Ledeau stayed, I think, two days in the Lexington Hotel. After their departure, I cleaned the room and found three small round bottles. They were about the size of a half-burned cigar. I threw them in the ash barrel and they were removed the following day. I do not know where they were bought. I think one of the bottles had a red label with crossbones, but I am not sure of this. <laughs> oh my! A I red lo- label with crossbones. I love it. I love it. Could it have been poison? Hmm. hmm. Inquiry. My on. instincts tell me <laughs> that it may have been. My Scooby skills are telling me it could have been poison. Oh, whatever. Or does that sign stand for something else? I'm not sure. It does in our text messages because we're constantly texting them. Yes. About being deceased. Yes, being dead because it's something's funny. Just to clarify that. Yes, yes. Whenever they, uh, excuse me, whatever may have transpired that evening in San Francisco, it seemed to be more than just a mere coincidence that two weeks later, Mick Vicker would be found dead. The newspapers are starting to um, pick that up as well. I would hope so. Mm-hmm. From the records correspondence at Jamestown this morning, it was learned that the woman passed there as McVicker's wife, but that she spent most of her time elsewhere and only visited him at their hotel at their home at the Rawhide Mine occasionally. McVicker came to Jamestown about two years ago. He was a timber man with a rawhide at the Rawhide Mine. He was a steady man and saved his money. Two weeks ago. His supposed wife told him that her mother, who lived in nearby Jackson, was wealthy, that she had a large ranch and several teams engaged in hauling freight to the Kennedy Mind, and that she wished McVicker to give up his job at the Rawhide and come take charge of her ranch and teams. McVicker didn't like this. He quit his job. He didn't want to, but he quit his job last Tuesday. Wednesday, he went to Jamestown and cashed a check for $70. The woman was with him. He was supposed to have had considerable money. They were in Jamestown until Friday morning when they took the train for Stockton. McVicker stated to a friend that he was going to Sutter Creek to take charge of his mother-in-law's business. He appeared worried and depressed and a little sad. So that was printed from uh, an article in the Amador Dispatch on March 30th, 1906. On the trip to Stockton, Emma and McVicker were staying at the California Lodging House in room 97. On Friday afternoon, the couple visited a furniture store to purchase a large amount of goods. McVicker opened an account on credit and gave instructions to ship all the purchases to Jamestown. They then spent the rest of the evening together, ate dinner, and went to bed. It was in the early morning hours before McVicker had even eaten breakfast that he met his demise. Emma was seen going to the Rosebaum's store to purchase a trunk, which she had delivered to the lodging house. She had the trunk. She bought it from a furniture store, had it delivered to the lodging house where she was staying. She also visited the furniture store again that they had went the day before, requesting that the purchases she and McVicker had made the day before be sent to the strain 
the train, the train station at Martel and to be addressed to Jean Ledeau, to which Emma claimed was her brother. That's her husband. Uh. (laughs) Just so you know. Instead of to Jamestown, where they originally had them scheduled Mm -hmm. to be delivered to. She then went to H.G. Shaw Hardware, where she purchased a rope from Ben Hart, who teased her and said, don't hang yourself with it. I love all these jokes around her purchases. Also, if somebody's purchasing a rope, why are you saying that? Right? Or with the cyanide, like, right. oh, uh, don't, <laughs> give, him don't give him any more. <laughs> Where then Emma replied, I'll see to it that I do not. Like, I'm not going to The irony in all not, of this. Right, not going to hang with it. Emma came back to the lodging house into her room when the delivery man, Charlie Barry, came to bring her the trunk. Barry claimed that she would only open the door wide enough to slide the trunk into the room, and then she closed it. She told him to come back in an hour because she needed to pack her dishes in it in order to catch the 120 train to Jamestown. Barry told her that she would never make it because it was already past noon, but she was very adamant that she had time. So Mr. Barry came back within the hour, and she was not ready, so he took a lunch break. When he finally came back, he saw that Emma was ready, and he noticed that the trunk was too heavy. He had to get another person to help him load load the trunk. Oh, no. Yep. In the trunk. In the truck. Trunk and truck. That's Very hard. similar. So they put the damn trunk in, the, in truck. the truck in order to deliver it to the train depot. Emma left with an unidentified man, and the delivery man met them at the station. She told Barry that since... They missed the earlier train. They would take the later train by by a different town and reach their destination. Although she and her mystery man secretly planned to board a different train altogether. According to the San Francisco call, the daughter of Officer Van Landingham, who was staying in the room just across the hall from Emma, claimed that she saw a smaller man that was not the deceased man, so it's not McVicker, who was coming and going from the room. A baggage handler also saw the same man at the train station who seemed nervous. They described him as a small man with a black mustache. Mustache. Yes. At the train station, Emma wrapped the trunk with the rope that she had purchased earlier and then gave instructions for the trunk to be shipped to the train in Jamestown. However, she failed to register the trunk properly. So when she and her new male companion boarded the train going westbound to the Bay Area, the trunk was supposed to go to Jamestown. Didn't go anywhere at all because she didn't fill out the right paperwork. Oh, no. It sat in the sun for hours. Oh. oh. I bet the uh, trunk oh. gets a little pungent. Well, yeah. When baggage handlers realized that it was abandoned, the trunk was then put aside. Eventually, employees noticed a foul smell. <laughs> You don't say. Which piqued their interest just a bit, just to figure out what the hell was causing that stank. (laughs) Yeah. It's getting a little stank in here. And this is where it sounds cool to be the baggage master, but when you get notified of an abandoned trunk that's got some stank to it. Oh. John Thompson was like, God, my job sucks today. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Did he so, quit? Uh, he quickly alerted the authorities. I oh, think okay. he was like, listen. I would have been like, I, this is where it ends for me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, baggage, I'm leaving. Baggage master, no more. Yeah. <laughs> the first officer of the law on this case was police captain John Walker, which sounds like a captain name. 
It does. I'm John Walker. Uh, Absolutely. After obtaining a warrant signed by District Attorney Norton, the trunk was opened. Which, yeah, I guess you would have to have an, you know, I mean, it's an abandoned trunk, but Mm -hmm. yeah. The ghastly sight of Albert McVicker's body was revealed to them, and the hunt for his murderer began. Dun, dun, dun. McVicker's corpse was found curled up with wounds on his head and bruises. His nose had been completely fractured, and his head was facing the bottom right side of the trunk, while his body and his arms and legs were opposite. Oh. Yeah. Oh, poor McVicker. Yeah, they were opposite the top left side of the trunk diagonally. So it's a cringy cringe blood that poured from his head and nose settled at the bottom corner of the trunk and covered over the clothing that had been packed with his body to keep the body from shifting around. How nice of them to put packing peanuts around him. Can you imagine opening that? No. Oh, no. While the authorities were investigating the scene, they where they discovered McVicker's body Emma had traveled to San Francisco to spend time with a man she knew by the name of Joseph Healy. According to Healy's statements later on, Emma had allegedly sent him a telegram that read, Leave on the 215 train. Meet me at the Royal House. The newspapers reported that Healy arrived at the Royal House located at 126 East Ellis Street, but she was not there, so he went over to 5th and Market to the cigar shop. Like, meh, she's not there. Let me go smoke a cig. Love a stogie. Yeah. Emma snuck up behind him and tapped him on the shoulder. I'm just picturing her like a predator at this point in time. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. As he was putting a nickel in the machine on the counter. Emma told Healy that she wanted to bring him back his ring and be on the square with him. So they went over to the restaurant to talk. During their discussion, Emma turned around and begged him to allow her to keep the ring, but offered him what it was worth in cash. When they arrived, Emma broke down and told him that McVicker had died and that she couldn't give him the ring as all her belongings were packed away. She also mentioned that McVicker had changed his life insurance policy and that his mother was the beneficiary. She claimed that she made arrangements with McVicker's brother to get $1,000 out of the money while his mother would get $4,000. So this is everything that Healy is like telling Mm-hmm. in his statement. Mm-hmm. He recalled two weeks prior to this conversation that Emma had called him and told him that McVicker had not long to live. This was around the same time that she was trying to poison him, ironically. And Dr. <laughs> Dylan had saved him. So when Healy had inquired as to what McVicker was suffering from, Emma plainly suggested it was minor's consumption. Hmm. Okay. Healy had heard Emma use that excuse before when describing how her other husband, William S. Williams, had died in Arizona. With all the clues right in front of him, Healy was either oblivious to the obvious or just incapable of telling the truth. But he claimed that he left Emma at the royal house once again and promised to return the next morning. When he arrived the next day, he walked into the parlor and picked up the newspaper. To his shock, he read the headlines about the unidentified body being found in the trunk to the train station in Stockton. Look at this, he said. Isn't it horrible? To which Emma replied, isn't it awful? Healy said that she acted very calmly and unaffected by the newspaper headline. After that, they left uh, to the Presidio for lunch, eating cracked crab and soda water. You just go ahead and live your best life, Emma. Yeah, have your crab. After 1 p.m., Healy returned to her to her room returned her to her room at the Royal Hotel where she went upstairs, retrieved the ring and returned it to him. She also asked him to escort her to the train station to say goodbye. 
Healy admitted that he saw her off on the 3 p.m. Santa Fe train to Stockton Sunday afternoon. So now all of a sudden she has the ring. So we're like, this is odd. Also, I think she's just yeah. got men everywhere. Don't this, you think? She has got more men in old-timey days. Mm-hmm. Man. I know. Than most people I'm can impressed. get swiped right. Right. <laughs> yeah. According to the San Francisco Call, dated March 27, 1906, authorities assumed Joseph Healy was none other than Emma's accomplice, the Mr. Miller. However, based on Mr. Healy's journal, which provided a well-documented accounting of his whereabouts for the past year or so, and after learning that he was well-spoken in the community— he, was, he had a good reputation for integrity, good habits. He was a church member, never drinks, blah, blah, blah. They believed that he was a dead end, that he had really didn't know anything. According to Healy, he met Emma in January 1904, where he quickly pursued in courting her. He was enamored by her strong vicariousness. He was just a young man, a plumber by trade, still living with his parents and his younger sister, younger siblings at 1152 Florida Street in San Francisco. Knowing she was out of his league, he still did not try, or he still didn't stop attempts to woo her, of course, and even went so far as to purchase a diamond ring to propose marriage in April of 1904, to which Emma declined the offer. That's what the ring is about. Okay. By June, she had changed her mind, and the wedding date was set for April 25th, 1905. Despite the fact that she was still married to McVicker, also to the other men. <laughs> she has she so much going on. Straight. No, she can't. Six days before the scheduled marriage date, Healy's mother received an anonymous note which soiled Emma's reputation and persuaded Healy's family to convince him to back it off with Emma. It was speculated that Emma herself wrote the letter in hopes that she could get out of the engagement from Healy. On May 21st, 1905, Healy had traveled all the way up to Emma's parents' home in Sutter Creek to demand his ring be returned, but using her power of persuasion, Emma was able to get Healy to leave without the ring. He later heard about her marriage to McVicker and figured that she would leave him alone for good. Back in Stockton, Sheriff Walker F. Sibley and the deputies at uh, Amador County decided to search for Emma and her unknown accomplice remember there was somebody that saw her or that was with her at the hotel and it wasn't healy mm-hmm. k and sibley um sorry sheriff k and sheriff sibley decided to travel to amador county to see if emma was hiding out at her mother's ranch which was located near ridge road in between jackson and sutter creek they couldn't find a trace of her but they got news of her fourth husband there eugene Ladeau. so after leaving san francisco emma stopped at the arlington hotel and it wasn't long before she was approached by a police officer, John Whalen, who had recognized her as a wanted woman. When he approached her, Emma stated, I know what you want with me, and I will go with you. Mm. So she went gracefully. Ah, uh, yes. According to the book Murder by the Bay by Charles F. Adams, some of the items that were found on Emma were bottles of uh, carbonic acid, morphine, cyanide of potassium, the meat cleaver she had purchased in San Francisco, a knife, and a small saw. The usuals. The use. A small saw. You check my purse. I mean, that's pretty much what I carry. Meat cleaver and cyanide. That's, those are my two go-to. A small saw. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to get in a bind. You never know when you have to cut through something. She did have other personal effects as well. Probably a sanitary napkin. Uh, Sure. Something of the like. She was accompanied to the the depot where she was sent back to Stockton to be placed in jail. 
on the charge of murder. Uh, and I'm sure this doesn't come as any surprise to you, but she basically modeled for her mugshot and uh, for all of the <laughs> no. the press that were there. She was very nonchalant and unaffected by the whole thing, showing no emotion during the entire booking process. And she claimed that the murder was done by a, na- a man named Mr. Miller and that he had known McVicker in Arizona. Her version of the story was that Miller ran into the couple in Stockton and came back to the lodging house with them after they had went out to dinner together. She claimed that the two men were drinking and talking about gambling before they started an argument. This was prior to her leaving the room. Then, when she came back, she discovered that McVicker was very ill and vomiting when he suddenly fell over dead on the bed, as one does. Right? She claimed Miller threatened to kill her unless she went along with disposing of McVicker's body for him. Sure. That's usually what murderers do. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I'm hearing no problems here. (sighs) Although, you know, if you think about it, toddlers do make a mess and then demand you clean it up. So That's true. She was adamant that she had nothing to do with the murder except for placing of the body in the trunk, claiming that Miller had threatened her with a pistol and a knife swearing he would kill her if she did not do as he said. So when the district attorney was like, yeah, there was a good amount of blood found inside the trunk, her response was, is that so? Why? I don't see how that could be. Okay. I, I'm flabbergasted. So it appeared that either Emma didn't know that McVicker was still alive when she put him in the trunk or that she was just playing coy. But interestingly, when asked if Mr. Miller was really Joseph Healy, Emma became irate, yelling, I don't want you to get these men mixed. Miller and Healy are entirely different men. Oh. Don't you me- don't you mess with my men. Yeah, yeah. I, I got hope, a lot of men. I hope he was not alive when placed in the trunk by the description of his body. But there was so much blood that they bl- I think are thinking that it was still pu- his heart was still pumping. Oh god. Poor guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful. So Joe Healy actually failed to give information in, re- in regards to his relationship with Emma, but he later opened up to the police that Emma had sent him a telegram to meet on Saturday to get, you know, the ring and that he wasn't there and all of that. So he also admitted that Emma told him that she needed his help in shipping McVicker's body back to his brother in Colorado, but claimed to have no part in the murder. So the San, the San Francisco call dated March 28, 1906, quotes Joe Healy's statement. I had told all that I knew about the woman already. No, I did not see her when I was in Stockton, and I didn't want to see her again. I am a pretty lucky fellow. Supposing that I had married her and had my life insured, I can't make the woman out. She liked me, I think, but I guess she would have done with me what she did with the others. I'm an awfully lucky man. I think you're correct, sir. Emma claimed that the mysterious Mr. Miller who she adamantly denied was Mr. Healy, forced her to help him dispose of McVicker's body at the train depot. Witnesses saw a man purchase two tickets for the train headed to Jackson, yet Emma and Mr. Miller jumped on the train headed westbound to the Bay Area. As As Emma stated to the authorities, although she and Mr. Miller were on the same train, they sat separately until reaching Niles. It was at Niles when they changed seats and sat together the rest of the trip. If she had really been forced to cover up a murder and had the ability to sit alone from Stockton all the way to Niles, she would have had numerous opportunities to flee and alert the authorities. Not only that, but according to the detectives, 
Healy had taken the train with Emma back towards Stockton, but got off at Point Richmond. In later statements given by Emma to the police, she claimed that Mr. Miller remained with her in San Francisco and departed at Point Richmond. It appeared that Emma's story about a mysterious Mr. Miller just didn't add up, and that Healy was, in fact, her accomplice. Yeah. And there we have it. Sorry, Joe. You're just a young man who courted the wrong Mm -hmm. vixen. Yep. At the morgue, McVicker's brother, J.E. McVicker, had arrived from Cripple Creek, Colorado, to identify the body. During the interview with the press, he was quoted saying, Yes, that's my brother, Albert. This will almost kill our poor old mother. She is now nearly 70 years of age, and I fear greatly the result of the shock upon her. Aww. He went on to say, Somehow I thought something was the matter with Al. Up to two years ago, we kept up a fairly regular correspondence. Then he stopped writing. My mother and the other members of the family had the same experience, and for long periods of time, we did not know where he was located. Albert was a first-rate man. Unless he went downhill rapidly in the last few years, what kind of woman is this alleged wife? She must be a regular tigress. I could hardly believe my eyes when I read of the tragedy in the Cripple Creek paper. The name caught my eye, and I feared the worst from the first. I telegraphed at once to your chief of police, but it was nearly a day and a night before I received a reply. I have never even seen the woman. We learned that he had married her in Arizona, but we never got much information about her farther than once or twice he mentioned having married a nice woman. That was printed in the San Francisco Call, April 1st, 1906. So during the autopsy of McVicker's body, Dr. S. E. Lada and Dr. Hall claimed that there were no signs of carbolic acid in his system at all, which contradicted what Emma had told the authorities. It was also said that it was unlikely that he had been poisoned to death and that they believed the blows to his head, which caused a congestion of the inner lining of the skull, brought on certain death. They also went on to add that there was no sign of a struggle had he been poisoned with carbolic acid, that he would not have become completely incapacitated so quickly. The doctors claimed that the body showed five contusions on his scalp and a blood clot fell from his nose as they were moving his body uh, out of the trunk. And so Dr. Letta later testified that the clot from the nose and the five contusions were caused prior to death. When McVicker's nose was struck during the course of being forced into the trunk, it caused a paramortem fracture. So the newspapers even claimed that during the embalming process, the fluid works its way through the drained arteries and um, ebbed from the nostril. This means that he was not dead when he was forced into the trunk. Oh gosh, that's awful. Yeah. Which goes against what Emma was saying, that he was vomiting and then suddenly dead. The autopsy also showed that there was morphine in his system and trace amounts of uh, coral hydrate but was was it enough to kill him? One theory presented was that it was McVicker who was really addicted to the morphine acquired by Emma's doctor in San Francisco two weeks before, and that McVicker took the morphine voluntarily, and that while drunk, he overdosed on the morphine and died. So testimony later given by Dr. Friedman of Sutter Creek stated that Emma was the one who had the morphine problems and that it all began in 1905. That is when she was first prescribed morphine for her ailment. Allegedly, during that time, Emma had been had been suffering from problems with her uterus and ovaries, which was the start of her need for morphine. Emma Ladeau became one of the biggest news stories of the decade. Every paper in every town wanted day-to-day updates on the trial and the gossip of the key players. 
The press had judged and convicted, convicted Ladeau in a court of public opinion long before the trial itself was even over. Over the course of several weeks, the press continued to pump out more and more information while the public ate it up, just like yeah, our case other from case. earlier. Mm-hmm. Which was just like so many cases, actually. When it came to the forensics, the case became even more interesting. The prosecution's star witness, Professor Ray Ravone Rogers, was a chemist for from Cooper Medical School, testified that McVicker had 10 times the amount of morphine in his system to kill a normal man his size. He also stated that McVicker had not died prior to being placed in the trunk, but in fact, he died while in the trunk, but not by suffocation. So the defense attorney, having the opportunity to cross-examine the witness, all the witnesses, questioned how he knew that McVicker did not suffocate while in the trunk. Rogers then explained to the jury that earlier that morning, he had the district attorney lock him in the very same trunk and laid in the very same position McVicker had been found in. He lay in the trunk, locked inside for almost 40 minutes without suffocating. Oh my God. He's like, I know he didn't suffocate because I'm here. I did it this morning. might be the... My favorite way that someone has how they're proven a point ever on cross examination. Yes. Well, how do you know he didn't suffocate in the trunk? Well, let me tell you. Yeah, because I did it this morning I, and I didn't die. I laid in the trunk. <laughs> he he claimed that he was hot, but given McVickers, what if he would have died? I, well, that's what I was just gonna say. He couldn't testify. Be like, well, I'm wrong. He yeah. did suffocate. Yep. There's no reason I can die and not testify because can confirm. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So he said in the trunk he was hot, but given McVicker's scenario, the blood from his nose that soaked the clothes would have made it even easier to breathe rather than the dry clothes that were placed in the trunk during his experiment. The question of the carbolic acid theory, Dr. E. Harbert claimed that alcohol had been discovered to be an anecdote for carbolic acid. He stated that by diluting it with alcohol, it would not cause the burns in the mouth or the mucous membranes, throat or stomach, as it normally would if it was ingested on its own, but it would most certainly cause death. So he went on to say that in regards to whether or not McVicker's body was stuffed in the trunk before or after his death, he said sometimes it's very difficult to impossible to tell by a postmortem whether a contusion on a human body was made slightly before or slightly or shortly after death. Then another doctor testified that it was impossible to tell whether bruises could be caused shortly before or shortly after death. Again, this is early 1900s. He also said that the dark mucus matter that was found in his stomach had indicated that he had ingested some of an irritant and that cyanide poisoning could have been the cause. He pointed out that the odor of cyanide poisoning was not always present after the death of it. That statement struck a nerve with Emma's mother because she dropped immediately fainting to the courtroom and had to be carried out. Emma began crying over her mother's collapsed over her mother's collapse. And smelling salts had to be administered to her in order to bring her to senses so the trial could proceed. Wow, this is quite a dramatic trial. It is, yep. The thought that Marianne uh, Heed grew faint and literally passed out after the mention of cyanide kind of draws some attention here. Emma's first husband died from suspicious circumstances, but was later deemed natural causes. Poisoning was rumored, though there was no way to prove it. 
And then in 1904, this time, Emma's stepfather, James Heed, died from what they said was a cancer of the stomach. But it makes it makes you wonder if it was really cancer at all. Could Emma's mother have known something that everyone else didn't? Emma was quite, was quite close to her mother, and in her eyes, she could do no wrong. So Mary Ann could just, con- maybe Mary Ann could just condone and kind of accept her daughter's lifestyle, like, you know, maybe. sleeping around, yeah. going back and forth. I don't know. Could she also have been aware of what happened to McVicker? Her mother must have had some knowledge of what was going on because Healy later admitted that he had been contacted or contracted, excuse me, to work on Marianne's house in Jackson, performing plumbing work on more than one occasion. And Healy also said that he had been engaged to Emma, you know, at the time. So obviously Marianne, Emma's mom, knew that she had multiple men. Because this guy is coming and doing plumbing, saying he's engaged to Emma. She knows he's married, that she's married to McVicker. Right. So, and also another, uh, the all the other men. So if this was true, Marianne was already well aware that her daughter was married to Ladeau and to McVicker, and yet promised to another man. With all the witness testimony and various theories thrown all over the place, the exact cause of death was never certain. They never could determine. If he had been drugged, if he'd been beaten over the head and then bled out, was he unconscious until dead in the trunk? Was he dead before? All of that. The defense wanted the jury to believe that McVicker was just a morphine addict who overdosed and that it and it really wasn't Emma's fault. But eventually the jury had to decide not how McVicker died, but who caused his death. It took six hours of deliberations before the jury convicted Emma Ladeau of the murder of McVicker in the first degree. She would be the first woman sentenced in a court of law to be executed in the state of California. However, on August 10th, 1906, and this was before our case, our gal before. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because that was 1934. She was supposed to hang in San Quentin prison on October 19th, and that sentence was never carried out. Instead, they just had her remain in the Stockton jail until 1909. Uh, while her attorney uh, received a stay of execution for Emma upon his appeal for a new trial. He's trying to get her a new trial. They gave us the stay of execution because her attorney is trying to file appeals, basically saying that she was tried by the media. She wasn't given a fair trial. She was tried by the media before the trial even started. Uh-huh. After looking at everything, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Emma Ladeau's request because of the technical errors made by the state during the trial. And during the years that Emma was jailed from the time of the trial all the way to 1909, she had become very ill. She was even published in many papers that she believed she was dying from consumption and believing that she was going to die and that she could not physically or mentally handle the stress of another trial. Emma wrote a letter to her attorney advising him to notify the courts that she wished to plead guilty. From a news article dated January 28, 1910, it stated, Mrs. Emma Ledeau pleaded guilty Wednesday morning to the murder of Albert McVicker and was sentenced to life imprisonment in San Quentin. She was then sent up to San Quentin, where she served 10 years before paroling in 1920. And according to the book Emma Ledeau and the Trunk Murder by Madeline Church, she stated that Emma... Uh, filed an application for executive clemency on October 22nd, 1914, in a section that asked if she had any children. Emma answered yes. Oh. 
And so then there's a document that shows she had twin sons, 11 years old, living in Oregon. The birth dates of the boys and the ages of them meant that they could have either been William S. Williams' son or even McVicker's. But it, we're, we are really not entirely sure. So there's a lot of mystery surrounding her because it's like if she really did have the babies, why'd she have them sent to Oregon? Right. Where she did live as a child for a, a certain amount of time. I think it was like 10 years, something like that. So maybe she, they had family and friends up there, but I'm not I'm not sure. Emma was paroled on July 20th, 1920, but continued to live the institutionalized life by violating the terms of her parole on more than one occasion. The first time she'd been staying with her sister in Los Angeles, and it was reported that she had been contributing to the delinquency of minors by providing alcohol to underage young men and being drunk in public. <laughs> Her parole was revoked and she went right back to prison. About three years later, she was paroled again in March of 1924. This was around the time that she met and married Fred Crackbon, who was said to be a wealthy businessman from Napa. Unfortunately for Emma, Crackbon died from a severe stroke in 1929, leaving her a widow once more. With all the deaths of her husband, does make so you wonder, many. did he really have a stroke. Yeah, absolutely. If she didn't, ha- if she didn't have anything to do with Crack Bond's death, then it it, it didn't seem to help her. Yeah, not so much. No. Well, it put her in a worse position financially because his children from a previous marriage inho- inherited all of his property. So now she is homeless and money. So probably not. It probably just was like a kind of a, an ironic twist of fate of like you murdered husbands and now yours that was you were surviving on died. So it wasn't long before Emma resorted back to her usual schemes of living a less than, you know, for the time, a, a less than respectable life. But I mean, whatever. Emma even started a, a Lonely Hearts da- dating service catering to forlorn men. And she pretend, pretended to connect these men with female pen pals, although she was the only female pen pal. Oh, gosh. She successfully swindled money out of lonesome, love-starved me- starved men until her parole officer finally cracked down on her and put her back in prison again on April 21st, 1931. Oh. <sighs> she was not going to change, that's for sure. No, it doesn't sound like it. Eventually, the state moved her. I love how she's like, I'm going to start this Lonely Hearts column, but I'm going to be the only the Lonely, lonely Heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, the state moved her from San Quentin to the woman's prison facility where she stayed for the remainder of her life in, in California. On July 6th, 1941, she died at the age of 68 from ovarian cancer, which she was said to have problems with her ovaries, and that's what started her in 1905 on her morphine addiction. Ah, uh, gotcha. She's buried in an unmarked grave. Wow. Yes. And actually, McVicker's body was buried at the Highland Cemetery in Wichita, Kansas. And as for her former husband, Eugene Ledeau, he died in 1943. And he's in buried in Sacramento, California. What an interesting life she had. Yes, yes. Lots uh, of relationships that ended very badly. <laughs> I There are several books out there about her. There's so much more detail. I mean, she really she really lived a fast and loose life. Yes, uh, she mean, did. That's for sure. So read more about her if you'd like to know more about Emma. Oh, we can't just go killing husbands, honey. No, no, we can't. I mean, I know our theme this week is I used to be married, but I'm better now. But man, girl, just divorce Yeah, <laughs> Right? Like, or maybe a- don't get married because it doesn't yeah. sound like it's your thing. You could do that too. Right. 
All right, are you ready for a brain bath? I am. And I actually think it was sent, you shared it, it was sent by your cousin. Yes. She finds really good ones for us. She sends a plethora of stories. She does. I love it. So this title is, Inspectors Seize Six Shipments of Bloodsuckers in Philadelphia. Ew. Is this vampires? I'm curious. I have questions. This was March 10th. U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers, in collaboration with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, no, probably not vampires. Sorry. <laughs> Recently seized six air six air cargo shipments of bloodsuckers in Philadelphia. The shipments contained nine plastic jars of the prohibited leeches. This sounds like a thing of nightmares. I know. What were you going to do with them? <laughs> right? What do you need that many for? There were about 300 in total. The bloodsuckers arrived from Bulgaria. Oh, God. No. From February 19th to February 25th and were set to be mailed to locations in Connecticut, Florida, and Illinois. The jars labeled the parasites as Geraldo Orialantis. Sorry, not a biology major. (laughs) Not into environmental science. However, a USFWS inspector correctly identified them as Herodometasalanus, which are used in medical bloodletting treatments. The bloodsuckers were seized due to violating the Endangered Species Act, the Convention on International Trade. Oh, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. That's a that's a thing. That sounds like one exciting uh, conference. <laughs> Seriously, I'm going to the Convention of International Trade and Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora Convention. That, that's an exciting guest speaker. The keynote speaker <laughs> is is about leeches this week. We've pre- we've prepared a, a 60 minute presentation yes, about endangered leeches. <laughs> Ah, so Customs and Border Protection Officers and Agriculture Specialists um, often encounter unique and interesting things. This jar full of icky bloodsuckers while inspecting goods being imported into the United States, the CBP officers remain committed to collaborating with federal, state, and local law enforcement partners to intercept shipments that violate our nation's laws and potentially threaten harm to our citizens and our economy, I'd say way what to were go, you guys. Going to do I, with those bloodsuckers that are for medicinal purposes? Usually, seriously, what Is are this you a going to do? Homeopathic remedy? Was it for a birth doula? Someone. I'm just kidding. I actually am a certified birth doula. <laughs> if someone knows, like what people do with leeches, please send us a. Well, there's all kinds of no photos. There's all no kinds of. Old medical remedies uh, yeah. are being leached. Leeches are things oh, of nightmares. They're so gross. Have you ever had one on you? I have you, uh, and I'm still not fully recovered it's from the worst. it. Especially the dark ones. No. Nope. Yeah. No. No. Can't do it. I'm convinced they suck out little bits of my soul. Soul. Oh, yeah. They're and stealing your soul. And replace it with evil. Mm-hmm. And, and giving it to, to the devil himself yeah. because there's just no way that they're good. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Oh, everyone, they're so creepy. Everyone that's in environmental science, science right now is like, they like, do good d- yes. things, you assholes. Leeches have feelings too. Right. No. I get it, but I just so creepy. don't want them on me. No, ever. I don't. I agree. Oh. Well, <laughs> here's to creeping y'all out. 
But hey, rest assured, our border patrol are on it. On it. Customs and that long convention name of the fauna and flora people, <laughs> they seized that shit, and we are protected once again. No Bulgarian leeches are coming no, over here. No Bulgarian leeches. Plenty of other things, but not those. The killer hornets. Yes, murder hornets, yeah, the, the spiders murder- falling out of the sky, yeah. all that. We have yep. that stuff, but yep. not the leeches. Not Bulgarian leeches for, used for medicinal purposes. Yep, yep. Oh, shit. All right. Well, keep it curious. Keep listening. Thanks for listening today. Uh, follow us on social media. Join our Patreon if you want more of us. CrimeCuriousPatreon.com. Yeah. And until next time, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.